Notice the things that are working. Notice the ways in which you have enough at this moment. Even if your bank account is really low, even if your refrigerator is nearly empty, that in the great context, that you have enough. <laughs> what I do have, damn. My heart is pumping. My lungs are opening and closing. My cells are alive and vital. I have people I love. I have people who love me. And maybe it's not in the form that I thought it should be, some expectations, some society thought it should look, but mm, wow, it is enough. Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Janet Stone, beloved yoga teacher and longtime faculty at the Esalen Institute. Janet grew up on a self-described slightly crazy hippie farm in Northern California where she ate tofu, baled hay, and cleaned rabbit cages. As an adult, Janet spent 11 years in film and TV production, then traveled the world visiting, among other places, Northern India, where she began her yoga journey. Janet lives in San Francisco and continues to travel the world teaching and leading. She is an articulate and passionate speaker about yoga, life, humility, the concept of enoughness, meditation, esalen, and much more. Here's my conversation with Janet Stone. I read on your website that, um, that you grew up in like a hippie Northern California farm situation. And I was wondering if you could maybe just tell me a little bit about that to get us started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the background of this life's adventure really sort of came out of the messy soil of parents who were exploring the hippie, really more of just sustainable living, I'd say. So that it wasn't so much the drug culture and dropout of um, everything. They really wanted to figure out how to sustain themselves without um, all the resources that they knew were kind of going through governmental or through uh, corporations. So <laughs> I was born into where we made our own butter, where we uh, had all of our own animals and we would butcher and raise them. And simultaneously, my mom um, did animal rescue. So we would have variations of little baby deer whose mother was hit by a car on the way home or a whole litter of raccoons. Um, we would have a pelican one time and an aviary filled with birds who, whose nest got upset or whatever it may have been. So it was a fun and wild, we would drain our bathtubs to water our gardens. I mean, we were, had a boa constrictor who had an esophagus problem, so we had to have certain types of um, food for them. So it was quite an adventure and for sure uh, marked me um, indelibly in that I really understood what it took to live and to sustain life and the efforts and other lives um, that we're alongside on this journey. And I think that that um, was one of the deepest yogas ever. And we moved from Northern California eventually up to Oregon and even had sheep and we were sharing sheep and carding wool and, you know, just fully 
living off the land as much as possible. Did you have any physical, what was your physical experiences like when, when you know, I'm kind of digging for like, um, did you have any yoga-esque experiences that brought you into that realm? Yeah, what would my sort of yoga-esque experiences from childhood be? <laughs> well, I mean, I can simply say that my grandfather and three generations were born and raised in India, in a town called Hyderabad. And there's something to be said about whatever they steeped in being uh, offered through him to me, and just in the way that he was, the way that he viewed things. And that would be the closest. So obviously not in a body form, but definitely in the practices um, that were, that were brought forth from his time in India and really what it's like for him to grow up in India. As far as physical, I was a dancer and performed in dance and was on the dance team and the choreography from when I can first remember. I was also competing in gymnastics and so all the body pieces and the connectivity, I was very embodied, loved physical forms and um, yeah, then then it sort of moved into a combination of meditation, which caught me at 17, and hardcore mountain biking and snowboarding. <laughs> so I guess all of those are a preparation in some way. Well, when you fell into your, your, your career and, and your teaching, what was the path that, that kind of maneuvered you in, into feeling like this, no, this really is my calling, the teaching? Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I really love that you use the terminology of when you fell in, when you fell into um, yoga in the sense that I was fully satisfied with a, a career in the film industry and it was all behind the scenes stuff, but um, I was deep in it and loved it. And I am so grateful for the creativity and the people I got to work with and what I got to learn. and. Yoga just became a bigger and bigger part of my life as I had traveled back to India to kind of touch in with my grandfather's roots and um, yeah, it took hold of me. The asanas kind of came forth and the meditation I'd been doing for about 10 years really sort of started to sink in even deeper. So yeah, I would simply say that, wow, when it, when it started to shift, it really kind of had to do with babies. <laughs> really that I, I fell in love with someone who lived up in San Francisco and I was spending more and more time up there and suddenly we were having a child together and um, the film industry was not so much in San Francisco and I just found myself being offered again and again to come and teach someplace because they would watch my practice and uh, yeah, it, it unfolded in that way. And then it was really just a side thing that I did. It was really just an impassioned place because I wasn't Mm, I wasn't in the film industry at the moment. I wasn't really on any productions, and that just kind of took me by the hand and <laughs> pulled me right into it. What attracts you to teaching yoga now? And by that, I mean, what keeps you continually interested in this and new for you? Yeah, what keeps yoga new for me, you know? Come on, after 20-some years and 30-some years in meditation, 30-some, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you specifically. <laughs> but, yeah, what keeps me interested is actually paying attention, is that really in a simple Surya nam Namaskar, in a simple movement, inhale, arms up, exhale, fold in, inhale, lengthen, or whatever variation of 
that in that is the totality of living because it's the totality of me paying attention to all aspects of what's happening. The temperature, the day, the mood, the moment that's unfolding, my inner landscape, um, really just, it's so full. And the longer I'm in it, <laughs> the less I know. And the more of wide-eyed wonder I take at the power of these practices, that they are actually scientific, they have an art form in them, and what you give to them is what they give back to you. Meaning to say they are applicable in every realm of my life. I see a lot of yoga teachers, practitioners, who keep it to the rectangular mat, and oh, it is so much more potent and vast than that. And. So in my relationship ever-changing with my children as they grow, my relationship with myself ever-changing as it grows, my relationship with loved ones, it is so applicable, so potent in all of those spaces. So it is fascinating. I, I feel incredibly humbled by what was handed down. And also honoring my teacher's teachings really that they sacrificed and that they spent the time to really um, inquire within themselves and really put these teachings to the test. And I feel like that's what I want to do. Yeah, the yoga that takes place off the mat is truly where the rubber meets the road. I don't know, you know, where the eight limbs meet um, greed and jealousy and fear and, uh, you know, possessiveness and, an inability to trust. So the eight limbs for me is where it really comes alive and that I can start again and again and again in how I speak inwardly and how I speak outwardly. So my voice, my communication, what I actually, to be of modern times, what I post, <laughs> you know, that it's, it's in how I receive what someone's saying, how I can pause before becoming reactive. Mm, it's in my open-handedness to my children, a perigraha, that trusting that they will come and go and the power of their own life force. And really then, I guess, in the, in, in the ultimate for, sort of samadhi, the presence in the moment is how can then I offer this out to others and not even just yoga teachings, but just kindnesses and ultimately a hand up for those who have less um, being a steward of our five elements of our planet and really vocalizing the yoga through um, the protection of our environment. I was taking a look at your um, website and there was uh, a post on there where you wrote about the concept of enoughness. Mm. And I was wondering if you could just speak about that for a moment. Yeah, enoughness. Yeah, I don't even know if it's a real word, but it sure is in my lexicon what it's become because really what's happening with us, even in the yoga industry, what's happening with us is that we're consuming and we're consuming and we're consuming and we have more and more at our fingertips and we have more depression, more anxiety, um, more disconnect from our own being than ever before. And it is a simple practice. What we end up looking at affects us and informs us, of course. And every morning when we wake up, often it's the scroll of internal lack, right? If you're looking through, scrolling through, or if you're um, comparative living that we just 
constantly run through all the things we aren't, all the things we haven't given, all the things we haven't done. Even in yoga, all the asanas they haven't, you know, mastered or pranayamas or I need more chants or I need more followers or likes. It's just this consumption that will never fill the void, never fill the void. And so what it is to just pause for a moment, notice the things that are working, notice the ways in which you have enough at this moment. Even if your bank account is really low, even if your refrigerator is nearly empty, that in the great context that you have enough. And really in our Western world, more than enough to the point in which we are being smothered by our own consumption. We are more obese than ever. Again, we have more mental illness. We have more disconnect, less in, uh, internal connect, but also less connect with all those around us, our fellows, our village, and how each of us are interwoven. When we step out, when I step out into nature, when I see the web of life, like, ah, oh, <laughs> that's enough. And when I'm walking and I'm at the mall, then of course, no, it's not enough. It's like, I don't have those shoes. I don't have that thing. I don't walk that way. I don't got that thing. But the practice of enoughness is a practice. And it's not a practice that then you tick off your list. It's a practice that is ever important and ever evolving. That even in a momentary about to complain about there's not enough whipped cream or there's not this thing or I don't have that. It's like, oh, <laughs> what I do have, damn. My heart is pumping. My lungs are opening and closing. My cells are alive and vital. I have people I love. I have people who love me. And maybe it's not in the form that I thought it should be, some expectations, some society thought it should look, but mm, wow, it is enough. And then when I pause in that, it actually feels like more than enough. It feels insanely ab abundant. And in no way is that to say I don't have my moments and I still crave and I still long and I still grasp at. But boy, if this practice isn't to just set me into the grace of what is, uh, then I'm not sure. It's definitely not for getting my leg back behind my head. I've done that a lot and it has not um, created a sense of wholeness and santosha contentment. Mm. What advice would you give to somebody who's very new at yoga and finds it very challenging, either from a physical level or from a, a mental level? What, what could you say to them? Yeah, so for those who are newer to yoga, for those who are just stepping onto the path and they have some idea because they've seen photos selling yoga and it looks nothing like them, either in race or gender or in body size or whatever it might be or age, it's... A science and an art that is for every body, that is for every body, soul, being, the whole thing. So just arrive as you are. My advice is arrive as you are. Start where you are. Feel your breath maybe a little bit more deeply. It has nothing to do with your flexibility. It has nothing to do with your arm balances. Those are maybe a byproduct of focused attention, ekadrishti, this like really intense, or it could just be a physical proclivity that you have. I don't know, you know, it's really dependent on each person and that it's a philosophy and it is welcoming those who are monotheistic, polytheistic, 
agnostic. It's just welcomes. It welcomes all beings. It is not saying that you need to come only through Krishna or only through this avenue or only through asana or only through meditation. It is welcoming us all where we are. And the longer you stay, meaning the longer I stay, the deeper it goes where my cells feel penetrated, permeated. And if that's not what you're looking for, that's fine. If you just want to get a good chaturanga in, that's fine as well. The yoga will find you. It will find you. But just you show up, you show up, you show up, you show up. Keep moving closer and closer and closer. This is like kind of a cheeky question. I'm going to ask you, what do you most love about yoga? And then what do you least love about yoga? Mm. What do I most love about yoga? (laughs) That it is a lifetime practice. That my achievement-oriented, my um, striving self just gets humbled again and again and again. And I could probably say on the flip side, (laughs) the thing I like least is that my ego gets humbled again and again and again. What happens? How does your ego get humbled in yoga? My ego gets humbled in yoga and if I have some imagination that I can arrive at a place and that I check the box off or that I'm done because it is it is forever shifting. It's parinamavada. It's this life is constant change and the fluctuations and ebbs and flows. And I will think that I have something sorted, either a behavior or um, a reactivity that I think I have sorted, or I think I'll have a posture sorted. But then it's like, oh, I got the crick in the thing, or that thing doesn't is not as open because I did that thing. And um, so it's 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 the blessing of it honestly and you know kind of lightheartedly it's also the curse of it but um that is what it's for i think you know as an industry and what is turning into a commodification of yoga is the thing that i get a little achy around and i also have to trust it is that People are doing things that have nothing to do with the teachings of yoga, and they think it's yoga. And that's okay. I'm not a purist. It's it's all right. And yet, I hope that they stick around long enough to find out what yoga is, and it's acting um, in accordance with your own internal integrity and alignment, and it balances with how you behave in the world. What have you learned from your students recently? Hmm. What have I learned from my students recently is really just the power of vulnerability. <laughs> you know, any time to become a student, you know, most of these people who come across are professional people or they've got like amazing lives. They got their stuff going on and they come across and they they bring themselves into this incredibly vulnerable state where I'm guiding them. They're listening to what I'm doing and they're trying these things out that are humbling and sometimes feel like they quote unquote kick their butt even though that's that's not the point of it but you know where they're just themselves come against and right up to the face of their um, abilities to achieve all these other things in their lives and they sit there in that sweet vulnerability and I think that that's a place I want to keep arriving at I keep want to arriving at my own studentship 
So what is the process, since you just went through this um, teacher training, mm. what is the process of teaching people to be yoga teachers like? Mm-hmm. What could you comment on that? Yeah, so the question being, you know, what is the process of creating a teacher of yoga? Because I do lead what often are called teacher trainings, but what I call, actually, I don't call them teacher trainings. I call them immersions. I call them sadhana. And not to get all technical, but there is a huge difference in the sense that I don't think the world needs more yoga teachers. I think the world needs more people who are living the practices of yoga. So all that I offer throughout these journeys is truly how can you most align yourself and live your whole life imbued with these practices, then you will emanate the teachings, whether you work in tech, whether you're in the film industry, whether you drive a garbage truck, whether you want to emanate and tell people to put their body in certain shapes. That is only one tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of the practices of yoga. And so the process is that you are willing to take these teachings on and live them and be a human laboratory for the teachings of yoga. And that is intense. And that there is any notion that someone has that they can just skim by and tell someone to put their foot here and put their arm there. Sure, there are those avenues. But boy, when it penetrates you, when it becomes um, a living practice is when that's when I'm interested. And that's where I really invite those who come my way to dive into that direction, to self-inquiry, svadhyaya, self-study, study of the teachings. What is a mistake you used to make in your teaching of yoga that you don't make now? I'm sure I changed it out for another mistake <laughs> because I'm human, but um, I, th- I think at the beginning I made it felt like it was more about me. You know, when I would teach, I would think that I would get nervous or you get like, oh, I need to have my recipe or my things and um, and notice if, you know, people were happy or people were not happy with it. They liked it. They didn't like it. And really over the years, so it's I mean, it's a perfect journey to take. But over the years and decades um, where I my main mantra is it's not about me. And so I get to just kind of show up and offer the teachings as best I understand them. And people are going to like them. People are going to not like them. People will be happy. They'll be sad. And that is like the journey of our preferences. And the whole practice of yoga is finding the balanced place between our raga and dvesha, our likes and our dislikes, our longing and our version, if you're talking Buddhism. So I just offer the teachings and I just kind of let it be. And someone comes, someone goes, someone complains that it was too hot. Someone says this wasn't hot enough. And I just kind of let it all (laughs) wash and flow. And yeah, so I don't sort of take that on um, as as I used to, feeling responsible for it, I Mm, guess. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I don't know if this is a good question or not. Who who are your yoga heroes? Like, who are people who you look up to in the field or people who may have mentored you um, along the way? Mm. It's really often the ones that you wouldn't know about, honestly, because they're living without a need to be in any spotlight. They're truly softened around ambition, and they're um, humbled to the point of where they're really happy to just offer the teachings to those who will come quietly. Um, and walk through all seasons or sit through all seasons with them. 
Um, I've had people who have nothing to do with yoga at all that are probably the most yogic um, that I know, the yogic guides. My father was one of them for sure. And, mm, you know, Prem Rawat is my meditation teacher and his teachings just emanate out of me all the time. You'll see he's a very short Indian man. <laughs> so I, I can't do him justice, but I spent a lot of time at his feet. And um, Max Strom, you know, Max is, again, you would never note that he would be one of my root teachers per se, but he lives the practice. He's actually kind to everyone. And he lives in complete and utter integrity. And that's my hero. We talk sometimes about food deserts when I'm speaking about nutrition with people. I know there are yoga deserts too. Mm -hmm. So what would your advice be for some people who live in yoga deserts, but mm -hmm. who still feel the deep desire to get deep into this practice? And that is honestly why I eventually caved to online yoga and, and started making teachings for online because um, I resisted it for a really long time because there's nothing like teacher-student direct um, relationship and what happens when you're in person, but we are where we are. Technology is what it is, and we are living in the way that we're living. And I personally probably will not change that. So I kind of got on board and started making online content, not only for, you know, sweet asana practices that try to weave in the Dharma, the teachings, but also, you know, deeper, longer. I have a 12-week course that's on the eight limbs. I have something on chanting. I have, you know, these various offerings that really whatever is resonating within me, whatever is a deep practice in me that I can offer that um, wherever you are. I mean, I have people who practice with me in uh, South Korea. I have people who are all throughout China and, and in Europe and Australia. So we can kind of start making this a global community, make the conversation a global conversation. So talk to me about the, the yoga festival. How did the yoga festival at Esalen begin? The yoga festival at Esalen began 14 years ago. We're on our 14th year. We're here right now in the incredible surroundings. I cannot say it enough what it is to just rest at lands and, and look over the ocean um, to remind you of what the ebb and flow of each breath is. I digress, or maybe I progress, I don't know. The, es the Esalen Festival 14 years ago, I wasn't a part of it, but someone had the concept and the longing and the desire to really bring attention to the practices of yoga in all of their forms, in the philosophy aspect, in the, in the bodied, embodied aspects, pranayama, and even bhakti mantra, and sort of make it a coming together a sangha, you know, if we're going to sort of go back to this community of coming together, conversations globally happening of like, oh, well, we're kind of practicing this style over here. What, what happens when you bring an Iyengar practice together with an Ashtanga practice and then you bring in, you know, all the various voices. And so we really started to get fascinated. I came on around 11 years ago. We come here annually and what unfolds is truly 
people either who are already in the practices who practices get sparked again something awakens and then they're nourished and then they go out and nourish others um, music happens and dancing sometimes spontaneous sometimes planned and yeah lots of uh really connecting and sharing of the various practices so you know it is it is a beautiful gathering and you know we get to get tested and curious about uh, where we are in our practice and those who are brand new come rolling in and they just kind of get swept up in what's happening we have offerings for those who are newer all levels we have offerings more advanced we bring acro um, acro yoga in often we bring Thai massage therapeutics so we have so many beautiful voices that come in and share during this time Next year will be 15 years, and it's so good as a human to have markers. I mean, we're honestly living, we're such minuscule moments on this vast <laughs> journey of, sure, the Homo sapiens, but also <laughs> just the journey of beings. But it's fun to mark things as we go along. It's important to really make markers. You know, just this focus of... You know, how to keep things, of course, connected to the present and now and, you know, making sure that yoga is offered in all places, not, you know, not diluting it to the point of where it's it no longer has its deep resonance, but still inviting those in who want to come and touch and be uh, awakened to the beauty and delights of all the various types of yoga. So 15 years really can be a great celebration. What does Esalen mean to you? What does the land and the vibe and the spirit mean to you personally? Esalen, to me personally, means restoration. It means remembering. So not only restoring my own nervous system and what it is to be just in the hustle. <laughs> and even if you're not hustling, it's just when it's all around you, just thrumming all the time, there's something to restore and to arrive and remember the natural world and and again i think the remembering part is that we are interconnected all of us the heart and the the seed of this place is truly that we inform each other that we shine the light for each other in various places that we wouldn't otherwise see we hold mirrors up for each other and we get this beautiful remembering together and then the hot baths <laughs> <laughs> naked hot baths what makes Esalen a unique place uh, to teach in mm -hmm. what makes it different here honestly I am so fortunate to be able to travel the world and to go to some of the most exquisite retreat centers out there but there is nothing like this place it is one it kind of holds the funkiness of of its of its original seed and yet it's elevated to this level where it's willing to hear all voices i've also taught it you know zen centers and places where it's a one-pointed practice and there's a great power in that but this just has the space that it holds is vast enough for many viewpoints so the uniqueness is that plus oh my god it is the most beautiful place uh i have been to honestly so incredibly stunning and to sit in those hot baths natural mineral mineral baths just welling up from the earth while looking at the ocean and those waters meeting within the waterfall nearby i mean come on <laughs>
What would you say is your secret superpower? Like, what are you really good at that not many people know about? Seeing the whole being, really being willing to look and be the place to hold compassion for all that I see. I think that would be my superpower, including my children, to really see them wholly, not as a projected movie that I think that they should be, but to really see them. I'm just curious, has your taste for music that you play in your classes changed and evolved throughout the years? Because through my own experience with yoga, I've really had all kinds of experiences with the the music that the teachers have brought in, some extremely positive, some less positive. Mm. And I'm just curious what your path has been with music. Yeah, music and yoga, and I really just love to clarify that, you know, in its original form and as it came through, and especially with the asanas, there was no music. (laughs) It was the music of your breath and your commitment to that. And then, of course, there's bhakti and devotional music, and that sort of came up, but that was not happening simultaneously. They weren't side by side. When I came to it, there was sort of a, a possibility that was being unearthed, and where my passion for music just couldn't be quelled in a sense. And so it was this perfect union of music. And this was a while back. As time has gone by, for sure, (laughs) I've made my mistakes. I think I played MIA in class. (laughs) I have had mounds of live music, people who are really impassioned. I've had other people who came by and it just did not fit. Um, I've tried things, experimented. You know, I've really just ridden the wave of what feels uh, alive for me and what would support the practice to the best of my understanding. And sometimes that's silence and no music. Sometimes it's live music. Sometimes it's a playlist that somehow feels like it's weaving a story. Sometimes it's full-on Beyonce because she's the queen. I do think that it's become assumed that music should be in yoga and people feel pressure. And for me, what happened is it was, it was a deep um, aligning inside me that came forth as opposed to some outer thing going, oh, now you must play mu- music in yoga class. Please don't play music in yoga class if that's the viewpoint you're coming at. Please instead just teach the breathing, teach the postures, let the music sort of unfold with the breath. But if you're deeply, deeply connected to music and there's something that feels potent to come through, some message that comes through, then mm, weave it in. I I really have appreciated your ability to articulate through this Mm -hmm. interview, really appreciating your your wisdom. It it makes me think that in a lot of my classes that I've attended, there's kind of like two things going on. One is a physical guidance. And then the, the second part, the subtext, or sometimes not the subtext, but it's the teacher begins to kind of sprinkle in wisdom and they sprinkle, Mm -hmm. they sprinkle in philosophy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm just curious how much of that for you is improvisational Mm -hmm. that kind of comes out of you in the moment, or is it more something that you, you know, you want to hit certain points? Mm No, I think because of who I'm, who I am, really, it is what happens in the moment is entirely what happens in the moment. So really to arrive fully and keep my eyes open and to really experience 
um, who's in front of me and what's happening, the live experience bring the teaching that, that live within me out. And so that is where um, the theme or the anchor or uh, the teachings or the Dharma that comes alive in those practices, they come alive really truly because there is something either due to my practice that sort of spills forth <laughs> or something that, that is invoked um, by the practice. And, you know, I'm often I'm on a dedicated practice, so I might be, you know, in a deep reverence to Ganesh and then that, those energies weave throughout the practice. And that's the best way to do it. Whatever's alive in you, whatever feels really connected, then it comes out uh, with grace and sometimes some humor and <laughs> um, definitely lands a little bit deeper than, you know, the thing that, that is most painful for me is when I go to classes. I love going to brand new teachers, experienced teachers. I love it. But is when someone has um, solidified a teacher coat and it's like they put it on when they come in and it's like suddenly they're like inhales exhale peace and you're just you just there's no connection I can't feel them through that I feel like they're doing a monologue and it feels disconnected and so I for myself and for the way that works for best for me and encouraged by my teachers is to just uh, speak what is alive Janet Stone, how can we find out more about you and where you're going to be and your teachings? Yeah, if you've heard of this little thing called social media, it's a thing. <laughs> you can find me easily on Instagram, Janet Stone Yoga, on Facebook, Janet Stone Yoga, on my website, JanetStoneYoga.com. And that's it. I'm just in those places. Or, you know, try to find me live and in person. I do, fortunately, um, haul my kids around the world and teach globally. Uh, but I am based in San Francisco and held a home sangha for 17 years, one spot. So you can come find me there, too. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us and write a review. You can also find all of our episodes at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well.